God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. The nations, they make an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. So cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Holy Father, we love you and thank you for the amazing grace that has been shown us in Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have a plan for this world, that it is moving to a great fulfillment when your son will come back from heaven for his people. He will bring you promised Israel to a saving faith as their eyes are opened. And at least a third of them will call upon Jesus in faith. We look forward to that great day when he shall return. And we ask, O oh God, today in the interim until he comes that we would occupy as you commanded us. You've told us on the first day of the week that we are to gather. And we look forward to physically being here again next week. We pray your protection over our people in these days, that you would keep us healthy and that we would be alert and sensitive to the people around us who need Christ. Thank you for the fresh week and the brand new start that you've given us, that today can be the first day of the rest of our lives. As we open your word, we open our hearts to its truth, and we ask, Father, that you would speak to us, that you would help me, that you would fill me, that you would strengthen me and anoint me, that you might minister through me into each of your people. And I ask it in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Take God's word this morning, would you, and turn to the book of 1 Kings chapter 19. If you're joining us for the first time, we're in a series on the life and times of Elijah the prophet. Sometimes people read the Old Testament, but usually just the Psalms and the Proverbs, that tends to be the clean part of their Bible. But Romans 15 reminds us that whatever was written in the Old Testament was written to teach us. So Psalms and Proverbs, I say the clean part, that's the dirty part in the sense that that's the part you've marked up. But the rest of the Bible for the Old Testament tends to be clean. We tend to ignore it as Christians, but we shouldn't. For in the early days of the church, that's all they had. That's how they preached the gospel from the Old Testament scriptures. It was written, Paul said, to give us endurance and to give us encouragement. And we can learn from their victories just as much as we can learn from their defeats. And so we've been studying Elijah. He's a gutsy kind of man. He uh, is a man who we have seen in recent weeks who calls fire and rain down from heaven in our last encounter with him. And he demonstrates that the Lord, he is God. And so what is maybe surprising to some of us is that after this incredible spiritual victory comes some challenges and some deep discouragement in his life. And it seems to happen suddenly, almost without warning. But in retrospect, what happened was entirely predictable. And if you've ever faced discouragement in your Christian life, 
you're going to be able to relate to this man and to learn some principles on how to overcome discouragement, which you can see is the topic of this morning's message. Now, I hope by now you found it. Find Psalms. It's about dead center in the Bible. Scan to the left, and First and Second Kings is right before First and Second Chronicles. I want to begin by reading our text, First Kings 19, beginning now in verse 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a message to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and even more if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And he was afraid and arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die and said, it is enough now, O Lord, take my life for I am not better than my father's. He lay down and slept under a juniper tree. Behold, there was an angel touching him and he said to him, arise, eat. Then he looked and behold, there was at his head a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down. The angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Then he came there to a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So he said, go forth and stand on the mountain and before the Lord, before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by, and a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. The Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire a sound of a gentle blowing breeze. Some years ago, General Douglas MacArthur wrote an article entitled Requisite for Military Victory, and in that article he underscored four keys for any military campaign to be successful. He said, first, there must be morale. That is, there must be a will to win. There must be a cause worth fighting for, dying for. Second, he said, there must be strength. They must have the capabilities of a well-equipped army and well-trained soldiers. Third, he said, there must be adequate sources of supplies. The, The lifelines have to be kept open. And then fourth and finally, where he spent the bulk of his article, he said, you must, in order to win, have a knowledge of the enemy. And he made this statement, and I quote from his article, the greater the knowledge of the enemy, the greater the potential for victory. And then he substantiated that statement by training great military campaigns in history. And he begins with General Joshua, and he goes all the way through Rommel's North African campaign where he was defeated. Now, we know that what MacArthur had to say in the military realm also applies to the spiritual realm because 2 Corinthians 2.11 affirms the same truth, that we're not to be outwitted by the evil one. 
to which immediately Paul follows with this statement that we are not to be ignorance, ignorant of his schemes. Paraphrase, we are to know how the enemy operates. So MacArthur really concurred with Scripture, the greater the knowledge of the enemy, the greater the potential for victory. And I believe what we find here in 1 Kings 19 really is a case study on the strategy of Satan, especially as it relates to discouragement. And I suspect that maybe, perhaps, one of his chief tools, if not his number one tool, is discouragement. Because if he can discourage you such that you feel like quitting, if he can discourage you so that you come to the place where you seemingly don't care, if Satan can discourage you, he can make you ineffective in your struggle and in your promotion of the kingdom of God, and he can potentially lead you down a trail of spiritual disaster. Many pastors have fallen prey to discouragement, which is why the average stay in a church is only 3.6 years. And it's why a large number of young pastors who are now going into the ministry don't last more than two years. Many great biblical leaders fell under discouragement, Moses and leading some two million people out in the wilderness to go towards the promised land became discouraged. And at one point, as the book of Numbers underscored, he asked God to take his life. Jonah, after the greatest single revival in all of human history, was ready to curl up and to die. The Apostle Paul, on his third missionary journey, confessed in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he said, we despaired even of life during his ministry there in Asia. But I suppose that of those who have suffered from discouragement, who's most surprising is the prophet Elijah, especially after what we had seen him do up there on top of Mount Carmel. It's an incredible event that we studied last time. Beyond all odds, he defeats the 850 prophets of Baal and the Asherah and single-handedly kills them with the sword. Now, don't forget the context of the passage, or you won't really be able to appreciate God's formula, God's teaching, God's instruction for overcoming discouragement. Elijah had witnessed, if you remember, God's supernatural provision by sending ravens and feeding him there at the brook. God brought him bread and meat daily at the brook sheriff. Then God provided for him in the heart of enemy territory through a widow where God every day filled her need for flour in her jar for oil. Then we saw him pray earnestly, and he did something that had never happened in the history of the world. He raised a dead boy from the dead. And it was in this spiritual energy, you'll remember, that he meets those false prophets on the top of Mount Carmel. He's full of vim and vitality and, and vigor. But as chapter 18 records, while he could stand before those 850 prophets of Baal where he can believe and trust God to bring fire and rain down from heaven, you read those two chapters, 17 and 18, you think this man is a super prophet. But the book of James reminds us that Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. 
The ISV renders it, Elijah was a man just like us. The Net Bible says, Elijah was a human being like us. The King James, Elijah was a man subject to the like passions that we are. And so I want you to say today that this man of God who is riding really on a spiritual tidal wave falls into incredible discouragement. And he hits a bottom because remember, he is made of the same tissue that you and I are made of. He experiences the same human frailties that we know. Some of you are here today and you think you could take on the world spiritually. You're riding, uh, you're riding a wave of incredible encouragement. But remember, it's often when you are riding on a spiritual high that we will learn this morning you are most vulnerable to falling off that spiritual hobby horse. Or maybe you're listening to me today somewhere in the world and you are deeply discouraged in your spiritual life. Well, I have some good news for you. God gives you some instructions on overcoming discouragement. Now, I recognize that at some point or another, all of us are going to be discouraged. But here in 1 Kings 19, in many ways, we have someone who is more than just discouraged. He's deeply discouraged. Now, unlike all the psychobabble that's being written today on this chapter of Scripture, he's not manic depressive. He's not on the verge of some breakdown. That's sheer, unadulterated nonsense and psychobabble. But he is downcast. And as we're going to see today, he's downcast largely over the glory of God. And I am glad to let Scripture interpret Scripture. And I am glad that God did not let this chapter of Scripture be left out of the Bible. I remember as a new and young Christian reading a book, the autobiography of Jim Elliott called The Shadow of the Almighty. And if you know who Jim Elliott is, he's one of five missionaries who left Wheaton College at a time when it was still Bible-believing. And he went to minister to the Aka Indians. In fact, uh, those five men were all slaughtered. And they made the cover of Life magazine. I have that original magazine, and it's a gripping article that they wrote. And when I read his biography, it seemed almost larger than life. And it wasn't until many years later that Elizabeth Elliot, uh, his wife, wrote another book called The Journals of Jim Elliot. And there she included all the ups and downs, his flaws, his flesh, his failures. Now, when you read the Bible, you don't have to worry about the realism that is found here because when God describes people, he paints a portrait warts and all. He doesn't leave anything out, which is another argument for the inspiration of Scripture because if we were writing it, we wouldn't write it this way. But from the standpoint of the narrative, it would have been much less threatening just to have ended the story with his incredible victory up there on top of Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 18. But that would have been contrary to fact, so God includes chapter 19. And I think you will discover this morning that the point of Elijah's greatest strength that we have witnessed and studied in chapter 18 becomes the point of his greatest failure here in chapter 19. And so I want us to examine what happens because, again, the Scripture says that we are not to be ignorant of Satan's schemes. We are in a spiritual battle, and the battle is not between people, flesh and blood, but principalities and powers and dark forces. 
And Satan, by the way, is not very original. <laughs> He's still using the same techniques today. May I remind you what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful and will not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you are able. But with the temptation, he promises to provide a way of escape that you might be able to endure it. A way of escape that we might endure it. And we're going to see that the way of escape is found in the teachings and the explanations that God delineates in his word. And one of those ways of escape from discouragement is underscored here in 1 Kings 18. So this morning, we're going to look at three principles in dealing with the fiery darts of discouragement. I hope you printed out your note-taking outline. If you're listening to us online, the first point in your outline concerns the cause of discouragement. He unfolds for us in the first two verses the cause of discouragement, and it begins with Elijah's difficult circumstances. Now, please notice verse 1 here in chapter 19, now Ahab. Now, remember Ahab. He is the king ruling over the northern kingdom. The king, kingdom split right after Solomon into the north called Israel, into the south called Judah. Originally, it was all called Israel, but now it's divided into two. And Ahab is the most important figure in the northern kingdom. In fact, he received six chapters of press. And if you remember, in 1 Kings 16 and verse 30, God said, Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil and the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. That's his claim to fame. And if you read chapters 12 through 16, you see how significant that statement is. Out of all the kings listed, Omri, Ahab's dad, was rated according to verse 25 of chapter 16 as the pinnacle of evil today. But then suddenly the award is wrenched from his hand and given to his son. So reading further here into verse 1 of our chapter, now Ahab told Jezebel, that is Ahab's beautiful and wicked wife. And if you remember, she brought and initiated the demon-inspired child-sacrificing worship of Baal into the nation of Israel. Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Ahab comes home after a long and discouraging trip I mean, think of what just took place on this very day that we're reading about. He had set out with his servant Obadiah to that drought-stricken land looking for water and some possible grass for the crops, uh, for the cattle. But in the process, he meets Elijah, whom he calls that troubler of Israel. And if you remember, Elijah, really in control, in command, he challenges Ahab to a showdown with the prophets of Baal and Asherah, with the one true living God up there on top of Mount Carmel. And so the prophets of Baal, if you remember, they pray and they chant and they dance and they cut themselves for over six hours. They scream and they beg Baal to bring rain, but nothing happens. Then Elijah prays for approximately six seconds, and instantly a ball of fire comes down from heaven and consumes his sacrifice and the wet wood and the stones and everything, even the ash, is gone. And then Elijah, if you remembered last week, prayed earnestly for rain. 
It had not rained for three and a half years, but he had a promise of God to lean on and he believes God and the rain comes down from heaven. And then he outruns Ahab's chariot all the way some 20 miles down to Jezreel. So Ahab comes home and he says to Jezebel, Jezebel, honey, you can't believe what happened today. Our prophets of Baal prayed for six hours to Baal to bring fire down on the sacrifice, but it never happened. And then Elijah, that troubler, he prayed for six seconds, and then fire came down and instantly consumed everything into oblivion, and all the people were shouting, the Lord is God, the Lord is God. And then Elijah had all of our prophets slain. And when Jezebel hears how all of her prophets are killed with the sword, she's infuriated. Notice what she says, her response in verse 2. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and even more if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. In essence, she's saying, if I don't cut off your neck by tomorrow, if I don't kill you within the next 24 hours, may the gods kill me. I hate you so much, preacher, that I'm willing to even sacrifice my own life that you might die. Yes, King Ahab comes home with a negative report, but it's Queen Jezebel who acts because she's not only wearing the pants, she's wearing the pantyhose in the family. She's the leader of this particular home. And she's a woman with a callous, fallen, depraved heart. And she's really confirmed in her unbelief. And she has given clear proof of what God had done up there on top of Mount Carmel, showing that Baal is a non-entity. But that does not change her mind. Sometimes as Christians, we think, well, if we can just give a strong apologetic argument, if we can give the truth to people in such a way that we can impress upon their minds that the Lord Jesus, He is God, if we can give our best and most rigorous argument, then they will fall on their knees and repent and believe. But Jezebel here is a reminder of the fallen depravity of man. There is a blaze of light up there on top of Mount Carmel, but God needs to give internal light. God needs to open a heart, and it's really humbling when you realize that. It really has a way of humbling your evangelism and your preaching when you really understand that. It causes you to fall on your face before God and intercede with God for men. Paul said it this way, that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the, unbelie un uh, the unbelieving. So here's Jezebel, a depraved woman. Everything is consumed there on top of Mount Carmel except the blindness of her false worship to Baal. You know, unless God works, all of our efforts are useless and she's so hard, and she says, Elijah, I hate you. I'm going to kill you. And when Elijah gets wind of this, he gets the Jezebel jitters. Beginning now in verse 3, we move from Elijah's difficult circumstances to Elijah's lack of faith. Let's look, if you will, now at verse 3. And he was afraid and arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left 
his servants there. Elijah runs, and he runs through, uh, runs south through Judah. He runs all the way through the southern kingdom, all the way to Bathsheba. It's about a 120-mile trip. Here's a map just to give you some perspective and to get your geographical bearings clear. Again, remember, he had been at Mount Carmel. He goes to Jezreel, and then he goes all the way to the south. And you can see here on the map that Beersheba is out there um, west of the Dead Sea. It's a very wilderness, a very desolate kind of place. Now, can you believe that this great man of God would fall under such incredible intimidation? He had faced an entire nation that had opposed him. He personally, with the strength of God, executed the 850 prophets of Baal and the Asherah. He, by the strength of God, outran Ahab's chariot 18 to 20 miles all the way down to Jezreel. He had seen God's provision at a brook in Zarephath. He saw the Lord take care of him through a widow. He saw God's protection. He even raised a little boy who had been dead back to life, and you would have thought that this man at this point would have unshakable faith. What happened? There's a lesson that we can learn from this prophet concerning the cause of discouragement. Discouragement happens when you forget what God did yesterday because you're looking at the circumstances that you are harboring today. When you forget what God did yesterday because you're looking at your circumstances today, you will quickly become discouraged. Yesterday, the only thing in Elijah's vision was the Lord God. Today, all he can see is Jezebel. And so his perspective is really distorted, and so discouragement sets in when you really forget what God did. He had just come off of a great victory on top of Mount Carmel, and yet Jezebel She can come up with this little statement that she swears in the name of a God that he just demonstrated as a non-entity, and he gets the Jezebel jitters. Why? Because he had forgotten what God had done, and we're going to see why he forgot in just a moment. But one of the reasons sometimes we get discouraged, sometimes we want to quit, is because we forget what God did yesterday. We forget his faithfulness. We forget how he met us in the past, and we become consumed with today. And there are too many Christians who put God in the past. Listen, I've been in more than one church where I've preached, and I've heard the people say, oh, God used to do something great here. We used to see people come to the Lord. We saw a dynamic movement. People were joining all the time. We were having an impact in our community. My, weren't those great days. And on more than one occasion, I've wanted to say, is God dead? Is God not still alive? Do you just have to reminisce about the good old days? Have you forgotten what God can do this day? And God is sufficient today, and I want to remind you that if you're ever going to overcome discouragement, then you cannot leave God up on top of Mount Carmel. You must bring him down to Jezreel where you're living today. The God of yesterday, the Bible says, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never, ever, ever changes. And in the New Testament, in fact, why don't you turn to the book of Hebrews chapter uh, 12 for a moment. Hebrews 
chapter 12. The book of Hebrews is written to Jewish believers. It's an incredible uh, argument, and that these are Jewish believers who, because they are Jews and confessed Jesus to be Lord, had fallen under great persecution. Some of their businesses were being boycotted, they were being persecuted, but not to the point, the writer says, of shedding their blood. And so the writer to the Hebrews, we call the orphan epistle because we don't know who wrote it. We can say it was not Paul because it has none of his marks. But nonetheless, the human author that God used to write it shows the superiority of the Lord Jesus over the old covenant. And after he spends 11 chapters describing that, you come to the applicational section in chapter 12 and verse 1. Look at Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Now, of course, whenever you see the word therefore, the careful student of Scripture will ask, what is the therefore, therefore? And it's there in light of the illustrations that he had just come off of in chapter 11, where he underscores several dozen great men and women of faith who believed God during the Old Testament era. So this is an applicational word. In light of what I've just taught here in the 11th chapter and really the 10 chapters that preceded it, that chapter, this is how I want you to live. He has given us some inspiration that we in turn might exert some perspiration. And there are a lot of people who get all inspired in hearing God's Word, but they don't do anything with that inspiration. They get all inspired to be a follower of Christ, but they just sit there. When in the 10th chapter, a verse that we've heard quoted a lot during these COVID days that we're not to forsake our assembling together, the reason some of them were forsaking their assembling together, because when they showed up at church, they ended up getting persecuted. The reason we forsake our assembling, because it's raining. We want to sleep in and watch it on TV. Listen, when we have the opportunity to be here, we should be here. You can get inspired, you can be inspired to become a runner, but if you don't put on the shoes and get out there and do it, it will never happen. So chapter 12 begins with that word, therefore. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, and contextually this great cloud of witnesses refer to those great men and women of the faith that he's just described in the 11th chapter. And I emphasize that because if you've ever heard this verse taught, then you know that the point of, there is a point of rub in interpreting this verse. And the point of rub is not so much, at least for even the casual reader of Scripture, on the identification of the witnesses, but on our relationship to those witnesses. Some who preach this passage paint the scenario that we, the Christians, are living down, say, on the playing field of life, and there's cloud of witnesses, especially those in the Old Testament who have gone on before us. They're watching us. They're cheering us on as we run the race called the Christian life. Nothing could be further from the truth. Many speak sometimes, and it makes for colorful preaching and emotional preaching that even their loved ones who've gone on, their father, their mother, their grandfather, their grandmother, are there watching their performance, 
Listen, there's not one verse of Scripture that the saved in heaven are looking down and they're watching and cheering us on. In fact, if heaven were like that, if they could watch us, I suppose it would make heaven a little bit more like hell. But actually, the Bible teaches that there's a greater motivation for godly performance, and it's the fact that God is watching us. Now, understand that this word witness can be used in the Bible in either an active or a passive sense, and the uh, context will determine how it's being used. For instance, in the passive sense, the Apostle Paul will write in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 12 to Timothy, his son in the faith, fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I hear the word witness is in reference to a spectator, to those who had witnessed Timothy's confession, to those who had witnessed his ordination. They were passive onlookers. But the word witness can also have an active meaning uh, of someone who is bearing witness. Uh, For instance, um, you may go home this afternoon and you will actively, either by your lifestyle or by your words, witness the life of Christ. Right now, passively, you are listening to me witness God's truth, but maybe actively, you will be a witness before the week is finished. Well, the cloud of witnesses that are described in chapter 11 are not witnessing us from heaven. Rather, they are witnessing to us by the fact that they believed God and walked with God. They're encouraging us because this is a discouraged church that he is speaking to. People who had their parents and their brothers and sisters and loved ones abandon them because they said, Yeshua is Lord. And they are discouraged and downtrodden and is reminding them that look in the 11th chapter and all those great men and women of faith, many of whom suffered deeply, people of whom the world is not worthy of, the writer will say, yet they believed God and they walked by faith. And so they are examples to us in an active sense, not in a passive sense. They're not onlookers, they're examples of people who looked to God in faith and believed what he had revealed in his word. And so they are cheering us on only in the sense that they are a model to us. In fact, he's getting ready to tell us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Do you remember Peter and the disciples? They're out there in the boat on the Sea of Galilee, and and they see this figure on the starboard side, and they think it's a ghost, and they're scared to death. And then they hear Jesus' voice, and he says, take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter, in his characteristic fashion, says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Hey, the scripture says you do not have because you do not ask. And Peter, in faith, asks, and he's the only other individual in the history of creation who ever walked in water other than Christ. But if you will recall, he takes his eyes off of the author and perfecter of our faith as he begins to focus on the waves and the winds, and he begins to sink, and Jesus has to rescue him. In the same way, the moment you and I take our eyes off of the source, like Elijah did, 
then your great courage can turn into discouragement. The moment you take your eyes off of the source, the only one who is able to protect you and provide for you and work through you, then indeed failure can set in and you will quickly be discouraged. As long as your problem, as long as your Jezebel looks bigger than your God, then those circumstances will cover over and cloud your perspective of the living God. Fast forward to 2 Kings chapter 6 for a moment, a few pages to the right, 2 Kings chapter 6. And as you're turning there, I want to ask you a question that I cannot definitively say I have the answer to, but have you ever wondered if Elijah, who's the protege, Elisha, who's the protege of Elijah, the way I always remembered is J came before S. Someone emailed me and they said, I'm loving your series on Elisha. And I'm thinking, no, I'm not preaching on Elisha, except right now. I'm preaching on Elijah. J comes before S. That's how you can keep it straight. But I wondered if maybe, just maybe, Elijah taught Elisha how to keep a proper perspective from the experiences that he is having that we're witnessing this morning from 1 Kings 19. So here in 2 Kings 6, let's pick it up in verse, um, verse 8. Now, the king of Aram was warring against Israel. The Arameans, they were the bad guys. They were arch enemies of Israel. The king of Aram was warring against Israel, and he counseled with his servants, saying, in such and such a place shall be my camp. And the man of God, that's Elisha the prophet, sent word to the king of Israel, saying, beware that you do not pass the place, for the Arameans are coming down here. Now, how did Elisha know that? God told him that. And it's rather frustrating to the king of Aram that Elisha has inside information, and so he can set the plots against Israel. In fact, verse 11 tells us, now the heart of the king of Aram was enraged over this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, will you tell me which of us is for the king of Israel? Every time he comes up with some top secret plan to attack the king of Israel, God breaks through the security system and that he speaks directly to Elisha. And one of his servants, one of the servants of the king of Aram said, no, my Lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. I love it. You have this one man with a divine intelligence source, and he's able to take on an entire army. So the king gets his entire army to take out Elisha. If he knows all these things, let's take him out, verse 14. And he sent horses and chariots and a great army there. And they came by night and surrounded the city. Now when the attendant of the man of God has, had risen early and had gone out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was encircling the city. And his servant said to him, alas, my master, what shall we do? Now, that's a question of a discouraged person. What in the world are we going to do, Elisha? So Elisha answers him, do not fear. What do you mean, do not fear? Can't you see what's around us? Put your glasses on, prophet. They're getting ready to kill us, the whole Syrian army. So Elisha comes out, and he takes a look, and he says to his servant here in verse 16, so he answered him, 
do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Elijah, you're not looking very carefully. There's hundreds and hundreds of them. It's just you and me. So Elisha prays a very significant prayer here in verse 17. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. I like that. You see, all the attendant of the man of God could see was the problem, and all Elisha could see was the Lord. Through the eyes of faith, he saw the chariots of fire all around us, and he prays, Lord, open his eyes so that he can realize what is happening in the invisible realm. Now, what was the problem with the servant? Was it that he saw too much? No, it was that he saw too little. And faith recognizes infinitely beyond your senses of seeing and hearing and feeling and touching and smelling what God is able to do. Remember, we studied it a few weeks ago from Numbers 13. The majority of the spies came back from Kadesh Barnea. Moses had sent them out to spy out the land, not to see if they could take it because God promised it was theirs, but how they were going to take it. And if you remember, they came back from their mission and we're told in Numbers 13 and verse 32, notice the land through which we have gone is spying it out. And spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the peoples whom we saw in it are men of great size. And then they said, and we became like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. When they saw the giants, all they could see themselves was themselves, and they saw themselves like little grasshoppers. And I suppose had some reporter been on the scene and come up to Caleb, hey, Caleb, did you see what those guys saw? I saw exactly what they saw. They were giant men. They were huge. But he saw something else. He saw God. Are you one of those grasshoppers? Yes, sir, I'm one of those grasshoppers. But my God is bigger than those giants in the land, and he promised us that he would give us that land, and that we are clinging to that promise. By the way, what do you say this morning? Oh, Pastor Carl, the economy is a mess. How are we going to pay our bills? My job is on the brink of distinction. Oh, Pastor Carl, if you could see the pagans down where I work, there's just two of us. They curse, they swear, they tell dirty jokes. Listen, the only thing that needs to distinguish you is the size of your God. Your group may be small, but your God is big. You know what I often pray for when I'm in my prayer closet for our people? That God would open our eyes, that together we might believe God to do great things. So I just wonder if Elisha had taught Elisha 
this truth from his own failures that we're reading about this morning in 1 Kings 19. Because when you forget God, what God did yesterday, then you are going to be quickly consumed by your circumstances today. Now that's the cause of discouragement. There's a second truth I want to underscore from our passage, and it concerns the course of discouragement. There's a certain path that a discouraged person travels down. So let's first examine how Elijah travels a path of isolation. He travels a path of isolation. We read now from 1 Kings 19, and notice verse 3, and he was afraid, and arose, and ran for his life, and came to Bathsheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. The day before, he had taken on 850 prophets single-handedly. But now just one woman says, I'll get you, and so he gets. And so we're told that he left his servant there, and he goes to Beersheba. But he himself, as the human author of 1 Kings underscores under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's careful to underscore that he went to Beersheba alone. But he himself, then the text says in verse 4, went a day's journey into the wilderness. It wasn't good enough that he went 120 miles. He now has to go a day's journey, which biblically speaking is typically another 15 to 20 miles. He goes a day's journey into the wilderness. And the text says, and he, Elijah, came and sat down under a juniper tree, or you could translate it a broom tree. Here's a picture of a juniper tree in the wilderness. Some of you have been with me down to the Dead Sea, and on one of our trips, I pointed out one of these such trees. They grow pretty large in a barren land. They're not a shrub, is one less than faithful translation Writes. It's a large tree where you could get some shade in the desert. These great hills all around the area, when it rains, it just pours down water. Three trips ago, just before we had gotten there, 18 young students were washed away in one of these floods because when they happen, they happen so quickly. But the water that comes down is able to sustain this particular tree. But he goes to a very lonely place. It's a lonely place out there. And discouraged people often feel lonely. They feel despondent. And oftentimes when people are discouraged, they don't want people around. They escape all relationships. Stop and think about it. If you're discouraged this morning, more than likely you are having feelings of loneliness. Discouragement and loneliness tend to be Siamese twins. And it would have been much better had Elijah gotten with someone who might have given him some strength and objectivity. But of course, there weren't many people that were walking with God. But he could have certainly gotten together with the Lord. He said, Lord, I'm feeling so discouraged, even frightened over this woman Jezebel. Please help me. Please give me your strength right now. And I have no doubt that God, who is our refuge and strength and a very present help in a time of trouble, would have immediately met him and helped him to go through this. And please know that oftentimes the strength that God gives, that he ministers to you, comes by the Spirit of God via another person, another individual. 
Do you remember the book of Acts? The apostle Paul uh, has been through the ringer. He's been to city after city after city. He's persecuted. He's rejected. He's beaten up. And when he recounts it in his second letter to the Corinthians in chapter 7, he writes these words. For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. But we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. But God who comforts the depressed comforted us by the coming of Titus. Now, how did the Holy Spirit, our comforter, comfort Paul when he found himself, yes, depressed, the text says? He sent him Titus. And if you remember, Elijah, he had come to this point. He was despondent, and God wanted to care for his servant. He could have done it through another individual, but as we'll see this morning, God is going to do it directly. He could have done it sooner, but God is going to do it later. And remember Elijah, he had comforted people directly. When there's a widow who's down to her last meal, Remember what we read? Let me read it again to you from 1 Kings 17. Elijah said to that widow, as the Lord your God lives, I have no bread, only a handful of flour, the widow said, in the bowl, and a little oil in the jar. And behold, I am gathering a few sticks that I may go in and prepare for me and my son that we may eat and die. Then Elijah says to her, here's God bringing comfort through an individual. Do not fear. My, oh my, that's great advice. That sounds like good biblical counsel. But when the preacher says, I'm scared, I need to get out of here, he doesn't take his own advice. And sometimes when there's a problem or a challenge in my life, in ministry, and my wife senses I'm discouraged, she said, you know, I heard a preacher preach a sermon once, and he said such and such about so-and-so, and she virtually quotes me verbatim. And I said, that's great advice. He's a good preacher. She's trying to get me to live out what I preached. And if you're going through some discouragement, God may bring another person alongside to help you. But if you just look into the face of your problem 24-7, instead of looking into the face of God, you're going to live in that discouragement. Many times God will bring a person alongside. Many times he'll just meet you because you're meeting him assuming you are in your quiet time. And so if you are discouraged, you don't want to stay on a path of isolation. Here's Elijah. He's, he's isolated geographically. He's down at a, in a place where, you know, you, you can only spend so many hours there. Even in the wintertime, it's hot. And he's isolated from people. But we will see that a real believer is never, ever isolated from God. I want you to notice the progression as he travels down this path. He also travels the road of self-pity. He travels the road of self-pity. We're told here in verse 8 that Elijah, notice, went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree and he requested for himself that he might die and said, it is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. He's saying, Lord, I've had it. I'm turning in my prophet's badge. Kill me. I'm not better than my father's. They all died for the cause. I'm a nobody. Take me too. 
One of the fruits of discouragement is sometimes feeling sorry for yourself, wanting to have a pity party. Kill me, dear Lord. Please let me die. I'm just, I've had it. Have you ever thanked God for unanswered prayer? I think in hindsight, some of the moronic things I've prayed for in my life that God, thank God, didn't answer. And of course, when we pray, we have a double intercessor, not only Christ, but Paul says the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know how to pray sometimes as we ought. But the Spirit intercedes for us, and I thank God that he does. Now, personally, I don't think that Elijah is being totally honest with the Lord. I mean, clearly, if he wanted to die, it would be easy. All he would need to do is go back to Jezebel, and she would have gladly have accommodated his request. In fact, I think he wants to live like crazy. But he's venting his feelings here, and he's being honest with God, and he's really telling about all the hardship he wants, because misery often likes company. And so he moved down this path of isolation, down this road of self-pity. He's totally exhausted, and he sits under this shade tree, a broom tree, a juniper tree. By the way, discouragement, it will drain you. It just will take all the vim and vigor and vitality out of your life. It will leave you totally exhausted. You say, Pastor, that will never happen to me. I am on the top of the world spiritually. May I remind you that it is in the midst of victory that the Scripture teaches that you are most vulnerable. There is something about victory that elates that potentially takes your guard down and makes you a target for the evil one. Don't forget, it's just a short distance from the victory of 1 Kings 18 on top of Mount Carmel to where he is in chapter 19 in despair. And very times it's in our most victorious moments that we are most vulnerable to the evil one, and he knows that. I've noticed on more than one occasion in the spiritual life of a local assembly, even our own church, that after God gives us a a series of great victories, that we are most vulnerable. And Satan knows that. And that's not just true corporately, it's true individually. You go out and you share the gospel for the first time in your life and you see someone pray with you and they call upon Jesus' name in faith and you're walking on cloud nine. And that's when Satan attacks. How do I know that? Because the Bible tells me that's when he attacks. In 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 12, therefore, Let him who thinks he stands take care lest he fall. Lest he fall from what? In the context, he begins that chapter with the tremendous victories that God had given to the people of Israel. And it's in the midst of great victory that they fall. It comes right after the supernatural work of God performed through Moses that they lose perspective. And that is the point, again, where we are most vulnerable. And I've told you many, many, many times in the last next month, I've been here 30 years, that an unguarded strength is a double weakness. So having considered the cause of discouragement and the course of discouragement, let's finish by thinking about the cure for discouragement. The cure for discouragement. Now, while God did not give Elijah what he asked for, He did give him what he needed, and God's cure for discouragement comes on two levels. First, God's ministry to Elijah in the physical realm. 
God's ministry to the prophet Elijah in the physical realm. Verse five begins with a beautiful picture of the grace of God. Notice, he lay down and slept under a juniper tree, and behold, there was an angel touching him, and he said to him, arise, eat. This man's physically exhausted. He's emotionally spent. You do not do what Elijah did up on top of Mount Carmel and encountering these false teachers, then running about 20 miles, being in an intense prayer meeting to bring rain and not be drained both physically and spiritually. So God sends what the writer of the Hebrews calls one of his ministering servants, one of his ministering angels from heaven to prepare a meal for this man of God. And no doubt, as the angels of God often appear in human form in the Old Testament, we are reminded of the same truth in the New Testament in Hebrews 13 too, which is why this scripture says you can entertain an angel without ever knowing it. So he's in a deep sleep, and this angel comes, and he wakes him up. Look at verse 6. Then he looked, and behold, there was at his head a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water, and he ate and drank and lay down again. So God woke him up to give him this angel food cake, and he gave him a jar of water. God was taking care of him personally. Why did he send an angel to do it? He'd sent birds to do it before, gave him a brook, could have given him a spring, because I think God wants to remind him that there's a lot of things that are often going on in this spiritual realm that you cannot see. So he eats and he drinks, and then he goes back to sleep. And he slept for a while. Then we read in verse 7, the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, arise, eat, because the journey, God has a place he wants him to go. Hold that in your mind, because the journey is too great for you. One of the ways to deal with discouragement is by interfacing the physical dimension with the spiritual dimension in your life. I've said to more than one person in counseling them in the years in my office, hey, I think you need more than anything two or three really good nights of sleep. And we're living in a society that is often pressurized and you cannot escape the pressure of the society just because you're a child of God. We are all members of the same human family. And there are times, even in my own life, where I get so busy and the demands are so great, and sometimes I'll go a spell where there's just seemingly four or five hours of sleep a night, and there's nothing necessarily spiritual about that. Sometimes it can be just plain stupid. But I then find myself getting touchy and snappy. And my wife says, what did I do? You didn't do anything. You're just there. <laughs> and it's not the problem is so bad. It said, we're so bad. And in the spiritual realm, God speaks not just of our inner person, but our outer person. And he brings the two together. Some people, for instance, have ulcers because they worry. They're carrying responsibility that God never intended for them to carry. But on the spiritual side, too, some people have no vitality, no spiritual strength because they have unconfessed, unrepented sin in their life. King David wrote these words in Psalm 32. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. 
Sometimes you hear these pious Christians say, well, I'd rather burn out than rust out. Well, biblically, that's nonsense because God doesn't want you to either burn out or to rust out. He wants you to live out in the power of the Holy Spirit. He wants you to be a spirit-filled believer and to live under his control. And so there's a balance in Scripture between walking in the Spirit and taking care of yourself physically. And burnout can come through the spiritual dimension, sometimes just because you're not feeding yourself spiritually. You ignore the gathering together of God's people. And oftentimes it's when we ignore the gathering of God's people that the problems begin to rise and we make some very foolish and stupid decisions. Or we're just not spending time alone with God. It's more than just the pastor feeding you. You need to also become a self-feeder. Listen, when you're an infant, you feed that little child, but as they mature, they begin to feed themselves. And the same is true in the spiritual realm. You need to take care of yourself physically. You know, I meet these Christians, I don't smoke or drink. You know, my body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, but neither do they get sleep or exercise, and they're overweight, and they eat food that they shouldn't be eating. Look, it's one thing for your health to be taken because you just live in a fallen world. It's quite another thing for your health to be taken because you threw it away. So burnout can come in the spiritual realm in different ways. And so then, instead of being refreshed by your service for the Lord, if you're burned out, you become dissatisfied. And a pastor is especially susceptible to this. I went into the ministry in 1978, and I've learned over the years. And when I became a senior pastor of a local church, you know, you're giving out all week long. You're counseling people. You're responding to phone calls. You're helping younger pastors. You're sharing your faith. You're dealing with people's problems, sometimes funerals, sometimes weddings. And you're studying God's Word, and you're preparing, and then Sunday comes, and you preach two times. Sometimes an after meeting, meet the pastor where I speak for an hour, then an evening, meet the pastor where I speak another hour. And I wake up on Monday morning, and I'm totally exhausted. You have to almost scrape me off the floor. And some of you, you work your job hard all week, and Sunday comes, and you teach an ABF, or you minister to the children in Awana or the, in the nursery, and you give out, and you give out, but if you don't take in, you will burn out, you will dry out, and some people just quit. I, I'm, I'm just taking a spiritual break. You know, I'm, I'm quitting for the next five years. How foolish is that? People who just quit and they don't even show up at church anymore. Well, I just need a break. How they have lost perspective. So God takes Elijah the prophet first by ministering to him physically. He needs to rejuvenate him physically so that he can minister to him spiritually. And many of you know by experience that if you're tired and hungry and suffering from exhaustion, it will be difficult for you to have a good devotional time. And if you were out late last night and you got your children to bed late last night, then you are experiencing a deficit this morning in terms of hearing the Word of God. That's why traditionally I've always tried to guard the church's schedule where we don't, unless it's absolutely essential, have Saturday night times because I want our people to be ready and prepared to worship. I don't think it's by accident 
that the Sabbath began with sundown. It began sundown Friday and went through sundown Saturday because God wanted to prepare the nation for worship. Right out next to verse 7, would you, 2 John 2, 2 John 2. Put it out in the margin next to verse 7. Let me read it to you. It's just one chapter. I say 2 John 2, 3 John 2, 3 John 2. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. God is concerned that you prosper physically and spiritually, and yet so many of God's people go to one extreme or another. They either excuse poor physical health that they have brought on themselves, and so they don't think it affects them spiritually, or on the other extreme, all they do is worship the body and exercise, 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 and in the process, they neglect the spiritual man. And it's not an either or, this verse of forms, it's a both and. So God is interested in both. And so beginning in verse 8, we find God's ministry to Elijah in the spiritual realm, in the spiritual realm. Let me read verse 8. So he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, don't you wish you had that recipe? I mean, talk about power-packed food. He went to Horeb, the mountain of God. It's also called in Scripture Mount Sinai. That's the place where Moses met God. It's about another 200 miles south of Beersheba. Now, the location is significant because that is where God made a covenant with the nation, the very covenant that they are breaking which verses 15 through 17 will underscore as bringing God's discipline. Now, I think geographically, just that he travels another 200 miles, the idea that Elijah is in fear and he just can't get far enough and he's continuing to run is just not accurate. He's going there for a reason. God has already refreshed him physically and spiritually. To use a rough American analogy, Elijah is in Philadelphia, and then he travels to Beersheba in Washington, D.C., and then he travels another 200 miles to Raleigh, North Carolina. And it's certainly not at this point because he's in panic and fleeing Jezebel. Mount Sinai, the Mount Sinai, the Mount Horeb connection is not accidental. Because again, it was there that God made the covenant with Israel, and it was there that they broke the covenant. And so this angel fed him because he knew where he was heading. He is not merely some whining prophet, as as some make him at this point. No, he is concerned over the spiritual health of the people who repeatedly broke the covenant of God. Look at verse 9. Then he came to a cave and lodged there. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah has come to meet God, and so he's lodged in a cave, the text says, and instead of rebuking him, like some preach this text, that this is a rebuke, like, what are you doing here, you idiot? This is not a rebuke. The question is not implying criticism. It's God in ministry to him. He he wants to dialogue and have a conversation with his prophet. What are you doing here, Elijah? Listen, it's a reminder to me that while you might even be out of God's will, you're never out of God's care. Elijah, for a moment, lost perspective, but now he's coming to Horeb for a reason. Look at his response in verse 10. He said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, 
the God of hosts. For the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets. And that's emphatic in my Hebrew Bible, with the sword. And I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Let me tell you why I'm here, Lord. I've worked hard for you. And this congregation you have given me, I've preached sermon after sermon after sermon, and they're just carnal and unresponsive. And look what they've done. Look, the co- look at the covenant they've broken. They've messed up your covenant, your altars, and yes, they've killed even your prophets. Please understand, his discouragement at this point is not totally self-centered as many would make it. His heart is broken. He's poured himself out in service to God. And the people of God continue to ignore God. He is concerned for God's sake, for God's work, for God's cause. This is not just some manic, depressive preacher, as some would make him. He's brokenhearted over the glory of Almighty God. And so, yes, he's discouraged. But his discouragement concerns your covenant, your altars, and your prophets. And by the way, what makes you discouraged and despondent? Do you ever get discouraged and despondent over the glory of God and the will of God for his church? I think so many want to write Elijah off as some whiner, why? Because we have vested entrances and we like to be belly acres and say, there's a fellow belly acre and there's my biblical basis for it. We don't really want to admit that our despondency often is over self-centered reasons and we never get discouraged or despondent over infidelity with God. And so he adds here and again in verse 14, he says it twice, and I alone am left and they seek my life to take it away. So God's going to remind him that that's not exactly true. He may feel alone, but actually, according to verse 18, there are 7,000 prophets who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Let me read verse 18. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. He's giving him some encouraging words. Elijah, you're not alone. There are 7,000 people who are living for me, 7,000 people with character who have refused to bow their knee to Baal. Elijah, you're not alone. And by the way, Paul quotes this in in Romans chapter 11, this very passage of Scripture to remind us that God has always had his remnant because in 9, 10, and 11, he deals with Israel's election in chapter 9, Israel's rejection of Jesus in chapter 10, and their future restoration in chapter 11. And it reminds us that God has always had a remnant. And while the nation is largely in unbelief when Paul writes Romans to this day, He still had a remnant of believing Jews, Paul himself being one. And it was a reminder to Paul that God was still going to be faithful and he was going to keep his promises to Israel and that the church is falsely being taught over and over and over again today, creating a distorted eschatology. God has not replaced Israel with the church. But this encounter serves as a reminder that no man is indispensable to the work of God. We're only instruments. 
God wants to use you, but the danger when God begins to use you is to think that it's you rather than him. In fact, sometimes I'm convinced that God removes an individual just to show and to teach his people that truth. Suppose Jezebel had snuffed out the life of Elijah. It's altogether possible that God would have moved in the lives of one of these 7,000 and raised them up to do the work that this prophet had done. No one is indispensable to the God's service. Our time is about gone, but please don't miss the lesson. Notice how God ministers and cares for his man. Verse 11, so he said, go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by and a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. Now, there's a spillover from the text to our day. Sometimes we want to see God and fellowship with God in the spectacular, in the miraculous. Some pastors fill auditoriums on that false notion. And we think we need to see the mountain shake to see God work. But the scripture says the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind and earthquake, oh, wow, that must be God talking. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake fire, oh, I know that's God, but the Lord was not in the fire. Where are you, Lord? You told me to come to Mount Horeb, but I don't see you in any of these spectacular ways. And after the fire, a sound of a gentle blowing wind. And that's where he hears God's voice. And by the way, he hears God's voice Some of these women Bible teachers are going around, God speaks to me in that still, small voice, and let me tell you what God said, and they come up with sheer nonsense, extra revelation, adding to Scripture, like there's some super spiritual thing. God still spoke, but he doesn't use a dramatic experience to do it, and it came about when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle went out and stood in the entrance of the cave, and behold, a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? You mean you didn't cover your face in the earthquake? No, because the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. You mean you didn't cover your your face in the strong wind when God rent the mountains? No, because the Lord was not in the wind. You mean you didn't cover your face in the fire? No, because the Lord wasn't in the fire. Where was the Lord? He was not in the spectacular. He was in the everyday simple breezes of life. And God wanted to teach this prophet as he wants to teach you and me that normally God does not speak in the extraordinary Mount Carmel experiences, but in the everyday experiences of of life. Now, Elijah had seen a series of dramatic encounters where he had witnessed God's power, where he was fed at a brook, where he saw a jar of oil and, and some flour that never gave up, where he saw a great ball of fire come out of heaven, where he saw a dead boy come back to life. And God wants him to know that that's not typically how he speaks, but he speaks in quiet and gentle ways. Do you know what I've come to appreciate? It's the kind of life that doesn't function on the dramatic, emotional experiences but in the glory of the grind, the everyday experiences of life, because that's where we live. See, Elijah had just come off the mountain of the spectacular, and he needs to be reminded that the normal 
is just as wonderful as this spectacular and that God will often meet us there. Have you learned that? Have you learned to function in the normal? Or have you been sold the bill of goods that you need these dramatic experiences to walk with God? God wants to meet you in your home when you're cleaning the floor, when you're in your neighborhood and cutting the grass, when you're at work in your battalion or in your office. God wants to meet you in the everyday moments of life as you live by faith in what he has said in his word. Now, our Holy Father, we thank you for this prophet of God, this man of God, and the timeless lessons that are here And we know the kind of walk that he had can't even begin for an individual until they receive forgiveness, where you would then implant the spirit in them, where they would know you from the least to the greatest, as you promised through Jeremiah and Ezekiel. So help someone today to see that they are bankrupt, they are helpless, that they can do zero to redeem themselves, that they need a savior who can forgive them and implant within them the Holy Spirit, giving them new life, making them a new creature. Help someone today, Father, to say, Jesus, save me by your death and resurrection, that I might be different, that my life might change, that my sinful ways might turn into righteous ways. But Father, I know many who are listening have already met you, and some who are despondent and discouraged, some who need to make some changes in their physical life, but more than not, many who need to make some changes in their spiritual life, some who just need to become a member of a Bible-believing local assembly. They have lived in disobedience, they've isolated themselves from the people of God, Maybe because they're not saved, maybe because they're disobedient. You know their hearts. Help them to make things right. We ask it for your sake and for your glory, Lord Jesus, and in your holy name, amen.